0: All right. Good morning, listeners, and welcome to this week's news from the drug war front. Uh, brought to you by Karma, uh, the Canberra Alliance for High and Advocacy. Karma um, is the uh, peer-based drug use organisation in Canberra, and uh, it promotes a broad array of services provided uh, well provided to people of all sorts, but you know, legal and illicit drug users. Generally,
1: drug users. In and rec- his name's Jeff, and my name's Marion, and we're coming to you. Every Tuesday, that we can swing it.
2: <laughs> Indeed.
1: As long as we're still alive and well and kicking. And Jeffrey,
0: I seem to be having trouble with my levels. I'm not quite sure. Are you? Yeah. Um, but we'll, we'll press ahead. Um, we do provide uh, stories that come from the mainstream media and yep. the aim is to promote discussion in education um, about the impact of prohibition on policy and the impact on people who end up being criminalised for um, taking illicit drugs, yeah.
1: And the only people against whom uh, the anti-discrimination laws do not apply. Indeed. Yeah, so we're discriminated against illegally or rather not not discriminated against legally.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: Anyway... So, Karma is, uh, we believe people who use drugs should be treated with dignity and respect, both as human beings and as consumers of health and social services. Um, karma works to reduce the discrimination and stigma experienced by drug users and speaks for our community's equal rights by progressing drug law reform agendas. Programming. The programs provided by Karma include the Karma Peer Treatment Support Program, the Connection First Nations Program. Connection is the First Nations representation for illicit drug users of First Nations origin. Um, the Karma Naloxone Program, that's for education of uh, keeping people from overdosing, particularly on opioids or only on opioids. Karma's Community Development and Mentoring Program, the Fixed Peer Education Program, the news from the Drug War Front Radio Show—that's us, by the way. Reach Teach Treat hep- with the Hepatitis C Peer Education and Treatment Projects, and that's in cooperation with Hepatitis ACT and the Karma Primary Health Clinic. The Karma Clinic is an in reach. Partnership with Directions Health Services, which provides an on site doctor and nurse at the Karma Community Centre, who do general practitioner work, pharmacotherapy provision, including methadone, suboxone, and buvidal or depot buprenorphine treatment, and hepatitis B vaccination, hepatitis C, and treatment. Calm is a unique service within the ACT which operates on a peer base. That's us. That means we talk to each other. There's no power differentiation. It's person-centred philosophy, which means we encourage and support people to speak on their own behalf and participate directly in uh, improving their own lives. One of the big things we want to just enforce or reinforce is we have to be careful about self-stigmatisation. That is, be nice to each other. That's a
0: really important issue. Be careful Marianne, with each other. Absolutely. So many people internalise the... the... Hu-
1: we do. We Many of us. I mean, I'm 70 and I've been brought up with the idea that I have been naughty all my life, except for in the bits when I wasn't using illicit drugs. Yeah. And it's a and so we actually call each other junkies. Yeah. So unless we reclaim that word and make it non-judgmental, make it a uh, uh, our own word, our own description of yes. ourselves, but a kind representational
0: word which a lot of marginalized groups have done in the past yeah, through numerous or just examples. call
1: each other users yeah but yeah. self-stigmatization is a real problem and the guilt and disappointment we carry around with ourselves is bad enough without even thinking about what comes from the broader communi- community CARM is continually trying to address through education and community development initiatives designed to uh, engender a sense of self-worth and a community
0: of inclusiveness and integration. Yes, indeed. Um, Yeah, look, just uh, a quick note. We had a guest from Melbourne. um, Planned? Planned, yeah. Yeah. But unfortunately, um, the friend she's staying with, the car was playing up this morning. So these things happen. Out of the blue, um, so you'll just have to cope with Marion and I. Yeah,
1: but it was nice to, nice to hear that the Alcohol and Drug Foundation were, had a, somebody up in Canberra and were prepared to yeah, come on the show. Yeah, she Apparently was Apparently ke- they run a show in Melbourne On too. 3CR, yeah, yeah, she was
0: very keen to come on and... Um, yeah, just a bit, bit of a sad... That's to, sad,
1: but nonetheless... Yeah. Things happen. A big shout-out to you for offering to come on.
0: Indeed. Do you want to just give people the location of Karma and...
1: Oh, of course I do. That's right. I knew there was something else I had to do, um, apart from telling you that um, it looks cold out there, but it isn't really. There's no wind.
0: It's sort of humid, isn't it, rather? It yeah. is,
1: yeah. It says it's going to be, what, 24 or something, or maybe 21, but it ain't cold anyway. Karma and The Connection are co-located in the Belcon and Churches Centre at Shop 17, Level 1, 54, Benjamin Wayne. The drop-in hours are 10am to 4pm Monday to Friday and contact can be made on 62533643, that's if you've still got a landline, or by emailing karma at info at karma.org.au.
0: Yeah, so Karma's fully operational up and running
1: up and going and over the over the holidays it's february now so yeah. everybody should be back
0: from the coast well and truly into the new year yep all right this news from the drug war front uh Show reports on news stories that are relevant to illicit drug users from Australia and around the world. Many of the articles in the program come from other sources, including the mainstream media. The contents of this news from the Drug Warfront slash podcast do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Karma and the Connection. Karma does not condone, but nor does it condemn drug use, and we do not promote illegal activity. However, however, we recognise that drug use happens and will continue to happen regardless of laws and United Nations conventions. As such, Karma focuses on harm reduction messages, drug treatment support services, advocacy, and community development. We seek to reduce the harms associated with drug use and its criminalisation through the provision of programs that foster community development and the delivery of person centred holistic healthcare. Karma advocates for equity of health service delivery for all people, which um, shouldn't have to be um, an issue that needs to be raised. No, um, unfortunately, but it, is. Um, it
1: has to be brought up. And every week we need to say that. And yeah. it is not because uh, we are trying to deny karma's role or place in the community, quite the opposite simply to say that we are included in the number of alcohol and drug services in the ACT and that's where our funding comes from and that's to whom we should be grateful.
0: Yeah, and speaking of that, there's a new services directory that the Peak Body of Toad has been working on which um, incorporates the whole um, spectrum of services in the ACT which is really helpful for people that work in the sector and Yeah. um, yeah. It was nice to, to, to get to see it.
1: Yeah, I heard. Yeah, okay. All
0: let's, right, we'll go to our first song. This is Get In The Mood. It's uh, JJ Cale's Cocaine. Uh, the well-known JJ Cale song, Cocaine. Yep. Okay, it's, uh, what is it, 17 minutes to 11? Yep. You're listening to News from the Drug War Front with Jeff and Marion in, in the Two 2XX studio, 98.3 FM, People Powered Radio. Okay, people uh, most likely have heard of the CAN test, uh, Health now, and Drug Checking yeah, Service, by now. know about
1: it, yep.
0: um, We've got an article, uh, I think it's from News Corp, I'm not sure of the date, but anyway, um, it talks about uh, the... Um, the service and, uh, the extension of its operation till, uh, August. Okay. Uh, Darryl, not his real name is a born and bred Canberran in his early twenties who describes himself as an infrequent drug user who uses party drugs on special occasions. He said he felt really welcomed when he attended the can test drugs, uh, drug checking, drug testing service in civic, the first of its kind in Australia to test a sample of MDMA that he had in his possession Quote, it was a very non-judgmental atmosphere and I got my sample tested relatively quickly. Afterwards, I had a briefing with one of the workers and was given relevant uh, advice about the substance that I'd brought in. The drug test ultimately confirmed his sample was pure MDMA. Oh, good. Yeah, it's fortunate, I guess, yeah, compared to well, some of the other. very
1: fortunate given some of the crap that's been around.
0: And we've got the um, results of the 145 samples that. Yeah,
1: the NSP have actually got um, results of each each month they put out. Oh,
0: that's good. They
1: put out a copy of the can test. They've had 145 samples tested in its fifth month now. That's not bad given that they're only open six what, hours
0: a week. Six yeah.
1: hours a week into three hour lots. Yep. So yeah. Yeah. Anyway, no,
0: that, that that that's really sorry,
1: Jeff. Didn't mean to interrupt.
0: No, no, no. It's important that the the word gets out there yeah. that it's drug testing. It's not just pill yeah. checking. It's drug testing. Uh, Daryl said he felt privileged to live in a city with a progressive approach to drug harm minimisation. I feel very safe taking drugs here now, especially because of the availability of pill testing. He said. Another byproduct of pill testing is we know what's going around in Canberra now. We know what drugs are showing up here with the public alerts that come out. I just feel really informed and safe here compared to New South Wales where there continues to be so much stigma. And lots of um, police snipper dogs on mm, public transport. And
1: indeed. Um, despite pill testing making him feel safer, taking drugs in general, Darrell says he has not He has changed his drug habits due to both the availability and findings of the CAN test service. He's quoted as saying, some of these public alerts have been really shocking to me. Without can test, I just wouldn't have known, or the people around me wouldn't have known and would have been using these substances blindly. And we'll give you maybe a rundown of some of those drugs in a minute. Um, the fact that Canberra cocaine is apparently so bad and... People might remember that last time we were on we told you that there were, what, four samples of cocaine provided none of them had cocaine in it. Well,
0: the purity rates were very low.
1: Anyway, if anything, the progressive reforms in the ACT and the presence of the drug testing facility here has led to my drug use going down in frequency. I feel less impulsive with my drug use. I no longer feel that I need to take it as soon as I get it. Darrell has said that he's witnessed dangerous situations amongst his friends and peers who've had negative experiences with drugs which he believes could have been prevented if drug testing was available. Quote, I've seen people who uh, have really severe adverse experiences. I've seen people who have taken way too much MDMA, he said. A lot of substances that are substituted for MDMA are more potent, so these people don't know what they're taking. One particular incident seared in Daryl's mind is an incident where where a friend took too much LSD. God, I've had that happen to his friends too. My friend, in brackets, just really didn't know much about it at all, about the dosage or anything, he said. He ended up needing hospitalisation. He had to get an ambulance and stay in the hospital for four hours before someone could pick him up. If he had his drugs tested, he would have known what was in it and peer workers at testing facilities can inform you about safe and unsafe dosages.
0: It's such a really important um, piece of information that is given to
1: consumers. Absolutely. And when you think about things like LSD, I mean, the... When I first took LSD, I really was informed that you really need to somebody go with, with somebody you, yeah. who either is used to it yep. or knows where it's come from and has had the same type before or is not going to use it yep. and can take you along on the trip with you.
0: Yeah, not using alone is a pretty sound bit of advice. Well, not generally.
1: using alone is a good idea yep. for any drug, yep. really, any, particularly the street drugs.
0: Exactly. Okay, Daryl said uh, his incident occurred in New South Wales and the legal ramifications of drug possession were a major concern alongside health concerns. My other friends were really hesitant to call the ambulance and get me to hospital. My other friends were intoxicated as well. Um, There were all these thoughts going through your head about uh, because of all the stigma and legality uh, around drugs. Making a decision in that moment can be very clouded. Ultimately, his friend luckily did not suffer long-term effects from his adverse reaction to the drug and did not face legal ramifications. And it mentions a survey, I'm not sure uh, where it came from, but do you support pill testing? 58% yes, 42% no. Darrell said he wants to see can tests continued beyond August and wants to see more test insights opened across Canberra.
1: Mm. Ms um, quoted as saying, I think it would, wouldn't make any sense for the ACT government to make such a reform and then reduce this service that reduces the harm associated with drug use. I can understand CANTEST is just an experiment, but I think it's a really great service. It ought to be expanded because the hours are not ideal at the moment. This is what Daryl's saying, I might add. It's only open two days a week at really weird times it's not exactly the most convenient for people to utilize Darrell echoed ACT Health Minister Rachel Stephen Smith calls for other states and territories to send officials to Canberra to see how can test works um, more covered more coverage um, husband tear wife after oh, no that's got nothing to do with it. In the life of food delivery drivers. If you're going to criticise something, you actually have to see the effects of how it works firsthand. That's a he really says. good observation. And I think that yeah, there's, um, there's obviously a gap in the, uh, that article, and, and that's the end statement of the article. If you're going to criticise something, that is the can test. Uh, service in particular, it applies to, you have to see how it works We need first. to be
0: informed. You know, a yep. lot of people pass Infor- judgment.
1: Informed discussion is the only way to really make sense. People are not going to believe you if you just put shit on it.
0: Yep. Well, will we... Uh Dig into the Australia to allow a prescription of MDMA and psilocybin for treatment resistant mental illness Mass, What do you I think? I
1: think we might as well start on that now. Like Jeffrey, Tony Shepherd? take us up to the news. Yeah?
0: yeah. Okay.
1: Okay. Yeah. So there's a really interesting article. Um Australia to allow prescription of MDMA and psilocybin for treatment-resistant mental illnesses. And this is not the first time this has been raised, I might add, around about 40 years ago when paused, I was but... nursing. Oh, yeah. I was working with a psychiatrist who, with another psychologist, was suggesting that particularly for uh, psychotic illnesses mm. that the use of LSD might be a, use, a better treatment method. Anyway, from July, authorised psychiatrists will be able to prescribe the drugs for post-traumatic stress disorder and severe depression. Um, So this is from Tori Shepherd, Friday the 3rd, uh, 2023. After decades of, quote, demonstration... Demonisation. Oh, demonisation. Sorry about that, Trish. Psychiatrists will be able to prescribe MDMA and psilocybin in Australia from July this year. The Therapeutic Goods Administration, or TGA, made the surprise announcement on Friday afternoon. The drugs will only be allowed to be used in a very limited way and remain otherwise prohibited. But the mood, mood was described as a very welcome step away from what's been decades of demonisation by David du- du- Caldecott. Clinical senior lecturer in emergency medicine at the Australian National University, and he's involved in the CAN test, drug test. He was involved right from the start with the um,
0: testing at Music Festival. He's
1: been a great supporter of um, knowledge, you know, of information delivery to drug users.
0: And the importance of knowing what it is that.
1: What we're taking, that's right. Okay, so the drugs will only be used in a very limited way, or remain otherwise. I've done that one. Yeah. Okay, sorry, very welcome. Okay, now this is the bit that's going to drive me crazy. Three comma four methyl I got it. MDMA is commonly known as ecstasy, while psilocybin is a psychedelic commonly found in so-called magic mushrooms. Both drugs were used experimentally and therapeutically decades ago before being criminalised. Specifically, authorised psychiatrists will be able to prescribe MDMA for post-traumatic stress disorder and psilocybin for treatment-resistant depression depression ecstasy was developed as an appetite suppressant in 1912 but in the 1970s it started being used in therapy sessions in the united states it entered australia in the 1980s as a party drug and was criminalized in 1987 hmm. i might debate that many species of magic mushroom grow wild in australia I had a friend who used to say, look for the cow shit, but it is illegal to possess or supply psilocybin. Caldercott said it had become, quote, abundantly clear, end quote, that a controlled supply of both MDMA and psilocybin, quote, can have dramatic effects on conditions often considered refractory to contemporary treatment, end quote, and would particularly benefit Returned service men and women from the Australian Defence Force. Uh, quote "The safe remedicalization of certain historically illicit drugs is a very welcome step away from what has been decades of demonization," he said. In addition to a clear and evolving therapeutic benefit, it also offers the chance to catch up on decades of lost opportunity of delving into the inner workings of the human mind, abandoned for so long as part of an ill-conceived, ideological, quote,
0: war on drugs. What a brilliant description that is. Absolutely. that's really um, hits the mark. Cognitive neuropsychologist Professor Susan Susan Rossell from Swinburne Centre for Mental Health said she still had, quote, a significant degree of caution about the decision and she felt further research was needed. Rossell is the lead researcher on Australia's biggest research trial of psilocybin's effectiveness for treatment-resistant depression. We've got no data on long-term outcomes at all, so that does worry me, which is one of the reasons why I'm doing my very large study. Dr Stephen Bright, a senior lecturer and director of uh, psychedelic research in science and medicine at Edith Edith Cowan University, said the decision made Australia, quote, the first country in the world to officially recognise MDMA and psilocybin as medicines. And that's a substantial uh, shift, isn't it? It is. It's
1: a big change.
0: Look, a a lot of these things that have been criminalised had medical uses in the past before we had the modern war on drugs.
1: And I know people who... Been microdosing themselves on um, um, hallucinogenics. Indeed. um, In order to treat their anxiety reactions. A lot lot of cultures
0: that have used. um Coyote cactus. Oh, um, for,
1: yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and
0: ayahuasca. that. These
1: were the people that were the witch doctors, and they, yeah. the wise people, the wise men, actually, because it was generally men. If any of the women did it, they were
0: witches. But it, you it, know, it yes. would be called bush medicine from our first nations. People.
1: Absolutely, but it was. A, it's actually very. They're very useful. They had very useful properties and they should never have been criminalised no. in the first place. Anyway,
0: go on. Um, Dr. Bright saw it as an important step in drug policy reform, but added that extensive training was needed for the approved psychiatrists. He said the announcement could also lead to more people accessing the drugs illegally, quote, through desperation. That's an interesting point mm. people know it, it's available legally, but that. The hurdles are too difficult to Great, jump. To get hold yeah. of
1: them. Well, if we've got, if they've got a can test a, tr- a drug treatment
0: facility,
1: they can actually get ho- what they get hold of. They can find out what's it, in it and yeah. see whether it's useful.
0: Look, I'm sure if you've seen a psychiatrist, they'll have the purest, you know, most def- efficacious. Um, psilocybin but anyway it's just good to see there's been a shift in, in policy in a statement the therapeutic goods administration said the decision acknowledged quote the current lack of options for patients with specific treatment resistant mental illnesses mm-hmm. means that psilocybin and mdma can be used therapeutically in a controlled medical setting the tga said however patients may be vulnerable during psychedelic assisted psychotherapy requiring controls to protect these patients. Well, of course, you need to have well, that guidelines. that makes sense.
1: Yeah. And that's one of the points is if you're going to give somebody a hallucinogenic um, for treatment purposes, you need it. It needs to be a guided treatment process. Indeed. And that's why I would say have somebody with you, if you, even if you're taking it illicitly. If people provide it legally, one would expect that a psychiatrist or psychologist, whoever is making it available mm. to you, would be with you during the, the period that you're under the influence or mm. intoxicated, if you like, with the psilocybin or the MDMA.
0: Look, it's amazing how many lost opportunities there are for medical use of um uh, illicit substances you know cannabis for one we've done many stories on um, medical applications for cannabis cbd oils um all sorts of uh preparations that help people in so many ways for so many different yeah illnesses and, and
1: i've actually heard i had a few reports from people who've been able to get hold of uh cannabinoid oil oh, okay. and um have been able to get prescriptions yes. for it actually, yep. and um, the problem is access and cost still. Yeah. Well, it's not on the um, PPS. It, no, it's not available, uh, and it's not actually being made available through the, um, not being made available through the services. Anyway, we need to go. We off have to go to, go to the, the national
0: news. news. We'll be back after that. Yeah, welcome back to this week's news from the drug drug war front. Brought to you by Karma, the Canberra Alliance for Harm Minimization and Advocacy. And um, just before we go to a song, I'd just like to endorse um, Public Powered Radio Two Double X. And if you can become a financial supporter, I would uh, encourage you to do that. Or if you have some spare time on your hands, do some volunteer work. Um, the shows are made by volunteers, basically, and is a passion and labour of love for most. So. Um, If you can, try and support two double X. Okay, this is um, the Velvet Underground and Pale Blue Eyes.
3: Sometimes I feel so happy. Sometimes I feel so sad. Sometimes I feel so happy. But mostly you just make me mad Baby, you just make me mad Linger on top thought of you as my peak Thought of you as everything I've had but couldn't keep I've had but couldn't keep in a cup She said money is like (laughs)
0: <laughs> Underground, bit of a, a that was a little snoozy one, wasn't it? Ballad um, for from the Velvet Underground, but they yeah. did do a, an array of stuff. Okay, it's ten past eleven. You're with Jeff and Marion, Two Double X, People Powered Radio. Uh, a lot of people will be aware of the um, debate, both for and against of vaping, and this article by Terry Barnes from the Spectator Australia, February the sixth, puts it: vaping, public health, unlikely obsession. The Australian public health industry is overpopulated with intellectual egotists, activists, academics and bureaucrats who insist that they know what is best for all of us and brook no disagreement with their prescriptions for dealing with the vices and ills that beset our society. As far as they're concerned, it's their way or the highway. Ministers and members of parliament hang on to their every word or risk being condemned if they deviate from the the prescription. Public health policies are made in close consultation with them. Many are treated as unimpeachable oracles of wisdom, Aristotle's philosopher kings. Mm-hmm. Given, that's a pretty caustic opening. Yeah. Given this prevailing mindset, the public health industry, and I use that word deliberately, is reactionary, set in its ways, and unwilling to accept disruption to their worldview that might actually help achieve the goals that they say they aspire to. This is no more obvious than for the controversial issue of nicotine vaping.
2: Mm. Vaping's
0: been around for over two decades. It involves inhaling a vaporised solution that often, but does not always, contain a quantity of nicotine. It is intended and marketed overseas as a lower risk alternative to smokers getting their nicotine fix from a deadly addiction to combustible tobacco cigarettes.
1: Mm. Reputable researchers and medical and scientific groups, notably the Royal College of Physicians and the former Public Health England, have assessed the health risks of vaping compared to smoking. An expert committee of the RCP, or the Royal College of Physicians, concluded from the available scientific and empirical evidence that the comparable risks of vaping are up to 95% less than smoking. It's interesting. Mm. That's not surprising, given the highly toxic cocktail of substances in tobacco smoke, compared to vaping solutions. As a leading international expert in smoking and public health, the late Michael Russell pointed out decades ago, quote, people smoke for the nicotine and die from the tar. Mm, interesting. It is. Such scientific insights into the relative risks and benefits of smoking versus vaping have informed government and anti-smoking strategies in other Western countries over the last 15 years, most notably the UK and New Zealand, where vaping has been cautiously embraced in the cause of making those countries smoke-free. Their influence has been seen in precipitate drops in smoking rates in the UK and similar trends emerging across the Tasman. But when it comes to being open open to the public health possibilities of vaping as a harm reduction and quit smoking tool, the mindset of the public health industry is as closed as North Korea. <laughs> That's, yeah. Black and white, isn't it? So it's in so it is in Australia. Public policy treats vaping as being as bad as smoking and willingly demonises it as being even more so. Vaping generally is regulated within an inch of its life. Legal nicotine vaping can only be done here on doctor's prescription or by approving the personal importation of overseas products. Both processes are intended to be discouragingly lengthy, cumbersome and expensive. How surprising and, in the case of prescription, personally humiliating. And so deter vapors from using the product. Instead, some return to far deadlier smoking, to nicotine patches and gums that profit pharmaceutical companies. But many smokers reject or get their vaping fix from a burgeoning black
0: market. Yeah, hard to argue with that. Mm. The public health industry's policy fanaticism is one thing. Ad hominem attacks on pro-vaping advocates is another. The latest indirect attack on those advocates came last week in The Australian, revealing that citing scientific research funded by the Foundation for a Smoke-Free World, um, capitalised by tobacco industry giant Philip Morris, but established independently of it. The strategic wisdom of Philip Morris establishing the Foundation for a Smoke-Free World. Gee, that's almost surreal, it's isn't it? Like it's, yeah, that's con-
1: yeah, contradicted in the case, yeah.
0: Yeah, the strategic wisdom is debatable. It should have anticipated the attacks on its motives for doing so, and the determined campaigns by the public health establishment and its followers to discredit any research and the research is funded by the Foundation. It's an own goal, as the Australian's coverage highlights. But this strategic misjudgment doesn't mean research conducted with the Foundation's financial support is biased tainted or tobacco company-front when reputable researchers believe vaping does have a positive role to play in ending the global scourge of smoking, where can they go when the public health industry denounces them as heretics and effectively shuts down their access to government and philanthropic research grants? Well, it's the same mindset as prohibition itself, Absolutely. isn't it? It's-
1: yeah, and we were talking, Jeffrey. we were talking ages ago about where's the harm reduction Related to the anti-smoking campaign, Mm. where's the harm reduction in that? So either do it or don't do it. And if vaping is seen as a harm reduction tool, why not
0: embrace it? Absolutely. Um, Surely, if scientific research is published, valid, peer-reviewed and defensible, it doesn't matter who funds it as long as researchers declare any conflicts of interest. That applies to research funded by this foundation just as, much, just as much as it applies to research funded by, say, the National Health and Medical Research Council. And if a funder sponsors research that doesn't fit their hoped-for outcomes and indeed could benefit the cases of its opponents, is it any less valid for that? Apparently so, according to the public health industry. If that industry truly is serious about its mantra, quote, there's not enough hard evidence to say vaping is less harmful than smoking, and it should let a thousand flowers bloom to gather that evidence quickly mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and be prepared to accept that not all research findings will conform with its rigid worldview, a forlorn hope, unfortunately.
1: And we've got to remember that New South Wales... Under Glad- Gladys Berejiklian, had a research into eyes had yes. had a remember commission Extensive into eyes a yeah. lengthy one and had came out with what 15 lots of recommendation. recommendations all of which were ignored yeah. because they didn't conform with what Gladys was expecting to do. them to yeah, say. Yeah, very, very anyway, good point. The article goes on: the prevalence of vaping, vaping in Australia and is steadily rising despite everything being done. Canute like to stop it. Miners are, as the public health industry says, being attracted to it by its novelty and, dare it be said, the glamour of surreptitiously obtaining disapproved substances. This is a genuine cause for community concern. Instead of creating and expanding the nicotine-vaping black market, however, surely it's better to make it open, transparent and legal. Control the beast – Make vaping a legitimate, over-the-counter adult alternative to smoking, just as nicotine gums and patches are. Okay, there's more. Consequently, legal nicotine for vaping in federal prisons regulation, just as that legislation currently allows nicotine in, quote, tobacco-prepared and packed for smoking – and hypocritically so, given deadly cigarettes remain lawful retail products while the public health industry wages its almost unhinged jihad on vaping. Impose regulatory controls over the quality of vaping solutions and devices and the quantity of substances, not just nicotine, in the solutions.
0: That's a very good point.
1: Well, it's a point about taking... So take your vaping products maybe to the can test.
0: Or yeah, have proper regulation there. so people don't buy
1: So they know what's in, yeah. in what they're vaping, what's going into their vaping um, thing oh consumer... Oh, yeah, Draw on the experiences of United K and New Zealand and other comparable countries, bring into Australia vaping policies and regulations that work there and screen out what doesn't. Permit access to public and philanthropic research funding to scientists and researchers on all sides of the vaping versus smoking issue. But above all, end the North Korean-style closing of the public health industry mind to anything that disrupts their worldview, and especially end its denouncing of anyone who contradicts or questions its received wisdom. As matters stand, the public health industry's implacable refusal to keep an open mind risks killing smokers, during back to the deadly weed from harm-reducing reduction, harm reducing alternatives with their unhealthy version of kindness. Terry Barnes has in the past, this is just about him, advised vaping advocates and industry entities on related policy and regulatory issues. And that is a probably one of the most interesting articles I've read on vaping. Yeah, and I ag- agree. In, you could take the vaping out of it and apply it to any of the uh, so-called licit or illicit drugs that are available in Australia or the advice that people receive about those Mm. drugs. And it's still appropriate how people receive the information that they get and who funds it and who therefore believes it and the, the wisdom, supposedly, that comes with it is a really interesting discussion in and of itself.
0: Yeah, these things don't happen in a vacuum, Marion. There are people that benefit, vested interests, profit to be made, Always. agendas, yeah, you know. Well,
1: and and there's, a, a, there's a research industry, Jeffrey, mm. that you just can't ignore. And the NHMRC, so National Health and Research Council, as with any... Research, uh, research funding institution around the globe mm. has a bunch of people that they're prepared to fund because yes. they're acknowledged uh, experts in, their in inverted, inverted yeah, commas. Yeah. Um, and they are recognised. They know their name or mm. they've met them at the conference. Therefore, they're prepared to fund the research. But it might be more interesting or... Of more benefit mm. to research stuff that we don't know anything about, I agree. And only contradict or only only uh, put uh, only confuse people's minds mm. over. Yeah, we just tell people that it's wrong, and that's what we've been doing with the drug war for God knows how I long. I agree. So the vaping and it's um contribution to harm reduction is a really sensible argument the whole idea of harm reduction is how to change people's behavior in a way so that they do not make their consumption of whatever it is yeah. Unhealthy for them or unhelpful yeah, for them.
0: Absolutely, yeah. No, I, I struggle to see why vaping is so um, vehemently excluded from being seen as a harm reduction tool. You know, when you see the and known damage caused by um, tobacco smoking cigarettes. Um.
1: Well, we yeah absolutely we know what tobacco does, and. <laughs> As a smoker, it's really important to notice what the point of smoking is. And, part, you know, part of smoking is not just inhaling the tobacco or the nicotine or the using the tobacco, yep. but it's actually a matter of what are you doing with your hands and your mouth? Yep. Are you talking? Are you partying? Are you using other drugs and using that to uh, shut you up while you listen to other people's discussion? <laughs> there there are habits associated with the consumption of things like vaping yep. products, and I think it's really worth discussing that, uh, having that kind of discussion that the article just went through mm. with most of the products that are generally criticised or just demonised mm. by the health public health industry or okay. health service providers.
0: Um, well, hopefully this song is appropriate, uh, given we're trying to get people to change. It's Changes by David Bowie <laughs> from Hunter Dory.
2: I don't know what I was waiting for And my time was running wild and In the dead end streets And every time I thought I got it married It seemed the taste was not so sweet So I turned myself to face me But I've never caught a glimpse of How the others must see the fake I'm much too fast to take that test and turn and face the strain. Sides, but never leave the stream of warm, permanent sand So the days float through eyes, But still the days seem the same And these children that you spit on and day Try to change their worlds Are immune to your consultations They're quite aware of what they're going through Change it turn and face the strain. Change it don't tell them to blow up on uh, all of it.
0: Oh, All right, good. David Bowie, yeah, it's a classic song, isn't it, Yeah, From Hunky Dory?
1: As I say, I think that was the third album I bought. It was just, that was great. Yeah,
0: no, what an artist. Yep. Okay, it's uh, 28 minutes after 11. You're with Jeff and Marion in Studio One of Two X 98.3 FM, People Powered Radio. And we've got a piece that's uh, about America, but I think um, it probably could apply to people who are Asian in any country.
1: Uh, having just had a birthday, I reckon it can apply to us, yeah. Yeah.
0: Uh, It's from Morningstar.com, February 5th, by Moe Stetner. Addiction amongst older people is rising. How to spot the signs and get help. In the 2021 movie The Good House, Sigourney Weaver plays an alcoholic in her early 70s. While there are dozens of movies about young people battling substance use, it's startling to see an older person struggling. It's easy to forget that older people can suffer from what doctors call substance abuse disorder, just like everyone else. They are hardly immune. Quote, we normally think the age of risk for substance abuse use is the 20s Mm. and 30s, said Kenneth Kenneth Leonard, PhD, Director of Clinical and Research Institute on Addictions at University of Buffalo. And overall, the problem tends to decline with age. But over the last 15 years, we've seen an increase in, he says addiction, in older people. Leonard, 68, speculates that some people of his generation face a risk of substance abuse after they retire. With more free time and fewer responsibilities, they can relive an earlier chapter in their lives. Alcohol and substance use in the 60s was on the increase, he said. Now they get into an age where they retire and they return to old habits. There's a lack of research on seniors and substance abuse, so it's hard to pinpoint what is causing the uptick, says Leonard, but that some experts worry it's becoming a hidden epidemic. Defining what constitutes an addict gets tricky. Older people who refill their wine glasses repeatedly in social settings may think that they can control their intake. It may take a trigger event like a car accident for them and their families to confront the issue. Alcohol isn't the only substance that seniors tend to misuse. The proliferation of pain medications and and their addictiveness pose another danger. For Americans aged between 18 and 49, fentanyl, a synthetic opioid, is the leading cause of death more than car accidents, suicides or gun violence. But older people are also caught up in this scourge, In 2021, there were 107,622 drug overdose deaths across the entire population, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. So Mm. over 107,000.
1: Nearly a million Americans aged 65 plus live with a substance abuse disorder. Age can make seniors more vulnerable to drug misuse because they tend to metabolise substances more slowly and their brain can be more sensitive to drugs. Alcohol and prescription opioids are most common sources of substance abuse disorder among seniors, says Mohammed Alabal, MD, medical director of Adcare Hospital in Worcester. Worcester, Massachusetts. Quote, it's problematic we see it on a daily basis. He notes that as people age, they often take multiple medication for a range of ailments. Managing pain, whether due to long-standing ailments or a recent fall, can lead to addiction. It's easy for families to miss signs that a parent or grandparent is at risk, and frontline medical providers may focus on an older patient's anxiety or depression without exploring the possible role of substance misuse. Moreover primary care physicians sometimes struggle to distinguish between common health problems that afflict aging adults like poor balance loss of core muscle strength mood disorders memory decline etc and substance of and symptoms of substance abuse or substance use Quote, education is essential says abal it well. it's important to, sp- to uh, it's a, important to spot a significant substance abuse disorder earlier, not later. He cites red flags such as, oh, here we go, changes in baseline behaviour like a decline in personal hygiene, repeatedly missing appointments, requesting renewals on prescription pain meds earlier than needed, and insisting on renewal of renewal of one pain medication instead of considering alternatives.
0: Well, the other issue that comes to mind with older people is the um, overprescribing of a whole range of medications that often have contraindications, or you know what I mean. There's yes, some people have got so many pills they don't know.
1: <laughs> they don't know what they're doing. Well, that's why they have every pharmacy has got what they're called um, something or other packs. Webster packs. Webster packs, that's right. So that because people are on so many drugs, they have them set out in their doses for them. For each on day. What day and yep. what time you take. you know, more yep. breakfast, lunchtime, dinner. So, you know, I can hardly blame the ageing person when their chemist and their doctor have got their Webster packs all nicely lined up for them and they're making a fortune out of them.
0: Indeed. While an attentive primary care doctor can identify signs of substance misuse, overcoming the problem requires a team effort. There really is no quick fix. Prescribed drugs such as naltrexone and methadone can treat uh, opiate use in the short term but over the long haul, the patient faces a series of challenges to get clean. Oh, I hate, hate that language. Yeah. <laughs> Quite. Yeah. Uh, anyway, to overcome the addiction, the treatment plan needs to involve behavioural change in a supportive setting. There's a recovery route, but the patient cannot do it alone. Everybody has to be on the same page, including family members and medical providers. What, call call an intervention or...
1: Oh, if my kids are listening to this, forget
0: it. Do not call an intervention.
1: Yeah, don't bother.
0: (laughs) He adds that even if an older person perseveres through the acute and chronic phase of substance uh, misuse and advances to remission, there is a possibility of relapse down the line. Harnessing a support system of friends, family and medical personnel can ensure prompt prompt intervention. Above all, seniors should not assume that because they have a history of managing their alcohol and drug intake, they're home free. All bets are off as you enter your golden years. I mean, there's some stuff that's interesting, but it's still within that mindset of... um
1: Well, I think the whole point is don't assume that... Uh, drug dependence belongs to young people. Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. Older people are involved too. Yeah. And it's true. You know, once you retire or once you give up working full-time, what do you do with your time? If there's no plan, if there's no activity, Mm. if there's no socialisation... Why not fill yourself up with something that makes you feel good?
0: Yeah. Yeah? And getting older comes with, you
1: know, infirmity. Well, it comes with another, a certain amount of fear in itself too, Geoffrey. Yeah. Yes. Yeah? Yeah. Just having turned 70, it it's frightening, wondering what you're going to do. Yeah. You know, or you could always go down the club. And watch TV while you push the button. That That's what great. I call gambling: is watching TV watching with hope,
0: stealing your money, yep. watching
1: TV with TV with hope. It is
0: all right. We'll play a quick song and then come back with a very interesting piece about the economics of fentanyl yeah. in, in Mexico. This Mexican is, fentanyl. Anyway. Uh, Mexican. Yeah, this is "Far Far Away" by Slade. Our naughty Holder had a voice, didn't
1: yeah. he? Yeah, look, I can imagine there are younger listeners out there. Are you there, kids? going, oh, who the hell was that? But Slade were just one of those bands that you had to be there to know what
0: they were like. They had a string of hits in the yeah, early 70s. and yeah.
1: they were great.
0: Indeed. Okay, uh, we mentioned before uh, we played Slade that we're going to talk about the uh, economics of Mexican fentanyl, the complicated and da- dangerous economics of Mexican fentanyl by Kerry Blackinger and Connor Sheets from Los Angeles Times, uh, dot com. February the 3rd. For decades, Mexican cartels have made big money trafficking drugs. The trade was long dominated by hard drugs such as heroin and cocaine. Hard drugs, I yeah, love that I, one. Like love know, their
1: hard and soft. Hard yeah? and soft. <laughs> Another cr-
0: crazy um, terminology. Yeah, terminology. Yeah. But in recent years, the criminal organisations have taken over the underground fentanyl market, eclipsing China as the main supplier to the US. An LA Times investigation uh, published last Thursday exposed a new front in the cartel's efforts to turn illicit fentanyl into hard cash. In three cities in northwestern Mexico, reporters found that some pharmacies are selling counterfeit pills laced with more powerful substances such as fentanyl and methamphetamine. Experts said those pills are almost certainly coming from cartels, aiming to pass them off as legitimate and difficult to get pharmaceuticals such as oxycodone and Adderall. But some readers wondered, why would cartels go to the trouble of making fake pills and lacing them with deadly drugs? According to drug market experts, it all comes down to demand and dollars. Quote, one of the reasons fentanyl has largely displaced heroin is because it's easier to manufacture. You don't need a poppy field and you don't need a laboratory, said Chelsea. No, you so-
1: just need a lab.
0: Oh, sorry, just need, you just need a lab. Yeah, yeah. thanks, Marion. Said Chelsea Shova a UCLA researcher and senior author of a recent study that paralleled the findings of the Times' investigation. Quote, You can buy a pill press online and make very, very convincing fakes. That explains why fake pills would make more business sense than heroin, but it still leaves the question as to why selling fake pills would be a more attractive business move than real pills.
1: Mm. Fair question. Indeed. Historically, legitimate oxycodone has been hard to come by in Mexico, Mexico, especially outside of hospitals. Quote, For a long time, it was often difficult to get doctors to prescribe pain medications, said James uh, Arrendondo. The Arredondo, sorry, the Canada Research Chair on Substance Use at the University of Victoria. The quote goes on In 2015, they changed the law to make it a little less easier on the- in theory, but it seems like doctors are still relatively reluctant reluctant to prescribe. But even if prescribed oxycodone is difficult to come by, as Shover pointed out, quote, You don't need a prescription to make a fentanyl fake. Aside from that, fentanyl is a relatively cheap and easy drug to synthesise and a very small amount can go a long, long way. Quote, You can make a product of comparable strength using a lot less fentanyl than oxycodone, Chauver said. You can make more pills with less products. And as Dr uh, David Goodman-Mezer, a UCLA, UCLA assistant professor, who is also one of the study's co-authors, said it's largely US buyers who are driving the demand for these faux pho- pharmaceuticals, not because they want the folks, but because they're looking for the real thing. Quote, this is especially true as we clamp down on access to pharmaceutical opioids in the US, in an attempt to, quote, solve our drug use problem, he said. Selling fentanyl in the form of pills is really marketing to a group of the population that may not be willing to try, quote, hard drugs. Even someone who isn't interested in... Uh, in heroin or cocaine, might be willing to take a seemingly safe pharmaceutical pill.
0: Yeah, I guess just in your mindset, the isn't psychological it? Yeah, yeah. thing aspect Impact. of pill, absolutely.
1: Yeah. And the pharmacies times, uh, at the pharmacies times, reporters visited last month. Pills were generally priced between fifteen and thirty five dollars each. These those figures are out of reach for many local drug users. And as Arredondo explained, the market for oxycodone among Mexicans is not sizable, in part because physicians there have been so hesitant to prescribe powerful painkillers. Quote, it seems just that it's just filling a void for American tourists, he said.
0: That's interesting. Mm. And catering to tourists is one way for cartels to expand their market. If you can get people who want more money who have more money, addicted to fentanyl, even if they don't actually know it's fentanyl, they're going to come back for more, said Stephanie Strathdee, a distinguished professor of medicine, University uh, California, San Diego, and another co-study of the UCLA-led study. Quote, tourists have more resources and the cartels are very aware of that. But exactly how much money um, counterfeit, pill, counterfeit pills generate for cartels is more difficult to say, according to Raman. Grand Grandmaison, mm-hmm. senior expert with the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. There's very little reliable data on the economics of manufacturing, trafficking and selling fentanyl and fentanyl-laced tablets. One of the questions I'd like to be able to answer is how profitable profitable is all that? How much does it really cost to produce it from A to Z? Because we hear so many different figures, the range of uncertainty in the figures is just insane. Unlike the cocaine trade, for which researchers have a strong sense of the econo- economic model, from the grain fields of South America to the streets of New York City, there's actually very little reliable data on the economics of manufacturing, trafficking and selling fentanyl and fentanyl-laced tablets. Quote, we don't know, like, how much does it cost to produce one pill, One pill, liqueur Grandmaison said. With fentanyl, we simply don't have the economic model at all. It's interesting, well, isn't it? it I mean, it'd be cheap to make, I would imagine, if you don't...
1: Well, you would think so, otherwise they wouldn't be doing it. Not only that, the um, competition between cartels mm. for the real products, you know, for the, the opioid same. products, yep. um, has been so violent and so destructive to their distribution points mm. and so frightening for the local population that it may well be financially and personally um, much more comfortable Mm -hmm. to be involved in the provision of pills as opposed to... Not only that, you can walk around with a bottle of pills with a label on them that says antibiotics and... What cop's going to tell you they're not antibiotics? How are they going to know
0: mm, good point.
1: what's actually in it? So, yeah, I think it makes a, a lot of sense to be manufacturing pills um, than to be trying to uh, really... Harvesting opioids has gotta be one of the hardest things in the world to do <laughs> except for harvesting cannabis <laughs> in large amounts. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right we'll and go, getting
0: rid of the seeds. Go to a quick song and then we'll wrap up the shows. The animals, don't let me be misunderstood. Oh yeah.
4: Sometimes I feel a little mad, but don't you know that no one alive can always be nature? An when things go wrong, I see me bad. I'm just a soul whose intentions are good. Oh Lord, please don't let me be misunderstood. Oh, 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 baby, don't you know I'm human I have thoughts like any other one Sometimes I find myself alone, regretting Some foolish thing, some little sinful thing I've done I'm just a soul whose intentions are good Oh, Lord, please don't let me be misunderstood is
0: Yeah, another classic band, another oh, classic song. I love
1: that one, Geoffrey. You've done some doozies this week.
0: Thank you, Matt. You're welcome. All right, we may not have time to fully get through this, but it's a very interesting uh, take on South Africa and the apartheid. We
1: very li- and- very rarely have anything to say on South Africa, Jeffrey. It's no. the first time I've seen an article from uh, South Africa about drugs. Yeah.
0: I agree.
1: So anyway, weed in South Africa, apartheid waged a war on drugs that has still unequal effects today, and this is by Tembisa Vechin, uh, Conversation.com, February the fifth. Cannabis has been commercialized into a multi billion dollar global industry, and South Africa wants a piece of this pie. In its 2022 State of the Nation address, President Cyril Ramaphosa spoke of the developing of developing a hemp and cannabis sector to boost the post-covid economy. Poor rural communities in South Africa have long cultivated cannabis in illegal conditions of risk. They now face losing out. They now face losing out to corporate interests and the wealthy. How did the stakes become so high and so unequal? My recent historical study helps answer this question. It reveals how an apartheid-era drug law incited a, quote, war on drugs that was in effect a war on cannabis. In 1971, a law was passed that subjected the cannabis plant and its products to the strictest possible controls. This set in motion a structurally...
0: racist policy that continued well into the post-apartheid era. Yeah, I was not aware of that. Anyway, apartheid's 1971 anti-drug law. In 1971, the apartheid government passed the Abuse of dependence Producing Substances and Rehabilitation Centres Act. Lawmakers boasted that it was, quote, the toughest anti-drug law in the Western world. The (laughs) law's main target was white, quote, hippie youth. The law followed recommendations by a state-sponsored inquiry, the Grobler Commission. The commission focused only on white South Africans' misuse of synthetic and pharmaceutical drugs, such as LSD, Mandrax, or Methacolone.
1: Methacolone. Methacolone, called, Okay. Yeah. and heroin.
0: Though the commission did not, in fact, turn up evidence of an extensive drug abuse problem, it nevertheless recommended very tough suppression. To the ruling National Party, the use of drugs by white people appeared to threaten the Afrikaner religious culture and the future of a white South Africa. They hyped the drug problem as, quote, a form of terrorism that's more dangerous than the armed terrorism that we are familiar (laughs) with on our country's borders. Talk about uh, hyperbole.
1: Well, this is, you know... Nixon was in power at the time. That's, that's true. Yeah, so Public enemy was really number one. echoing him. Yeah,
0: set, set the tone. Yep. The language of crisis enabled the apartheid lawmakers to borrow from the country's draconian anti-terrorism laws, such as the 1967 Terrorism Act, used to put down anti-apartheid activism. Like the anti-terrorism legislation, the 1971 Anti-Drug Act provided for harsh minimum prison sentences and detention without trial for purposes of interrogation. It also removed court discretion in sentencing for drug offences. When it was debated in Parliament, the principle of toughness appealed across party lines, except for one lone progressive voice, uh, the Progressive Party in mp helen suzman she observed that although the grobler commission excluded research on substance use by majority black south africans the law would nonetheless apply to them Mm. similarly she argued the commission had not investigated cannabis a substance considered by many to be less socially harmful than legal alcohol or tobacco yet it was to be scheduled in the new law as a prohibited dangerous drug along with heroin and cocaine
1: yeah um just sounded like you know, South Africa was following along following with the, rest the, lead. Of the crowd, yeah, yeah? yeah? The lone voice of reason. For centuries in Africa, including parts of South Africa, the cannabis plant had important indigenous cultural value and was cultivated for a variety of social and pharmacological uses. Cannabis was first criminalized in the country in nineteen twenty-two. But drug policy remained relatively weak for three decades. In the gap with and with growing urban markets, commercial cannabis livelihoods emerged to combat growing rural poverty. In such conditions, as Sussman pointed out, punitive drug control created co- to combat white pill popping was clearly going to fall on black South Africans for cannabis offences, Suzman fought hard. She pointed out that a, quote, marijuana commission was underway in the US, documenting how the supposed dangers of cannabis were greatly exaggerated. She argued for a less criminalising status for cannabis in South Africa. Her views were defeated and apartheid's extraordinary drug legislation was easily passed, Cannabis was classified among those those substances for marked for strictest suppression. Ah. Uh,
0: Look, it goes on to talk about the law's impacts. This decision proved to be a watershed. The effects of the 1971 anti-drug law were immediately evident, falling disproportionately on black South Africans. Cannabis accounted for well over 95% of uh, drug-related arrests and convictions across all race groups. And it talks about a, an assessment by the Natal Provincial Supreme Court where judges showed our prison terms of two to ten years were being imposed even for the petty possession of a single joint. <laughs> the rehabilitation centres part of the law applied only to white offenders, since, as Sussman has pointed out, The segregationist state did not provide drug treatment programs for black people. But even for convicted white users, sentences involving treatment applied to less than 1% of cases. Paradoxically, but unsurprising, illegal cannabis cultivation increased within the segregated spaces of apartheid. An illegal crop in high demand was profitable to grow and more so to to trade. Helicopters, spraying herbicides and multiple checkpoints raised the stakes of drug politics for all parties. The law's embedded racism meant that its tough drug suppression continued after apartheid ended. Its racist effects also continued.
1: Mm, a, a reckoning with history is needed. The 1971 anti-drug law was replaced with, in 1992 with a Drugs and Drug Trafficking Act. The new law maintained harsh sentences and cannabis remained illegal. The African National Congress, which came into power in 1994, reproduced the heavy-handed tactics it had inherited from the the apartheid National Party, militarised suppression, spraying and incarcerations. In 2017 and 2018 the government's policy cannabis policy was successfully challenged in the courts on grounds of cultural and religious freedom mm. well that makes perfect yeah, fair sense enough. Yeah. because that was one of the points big points really wasn't it with the Rastafarian religion oh,
0: a, lot, a lot of cultures have it yeah, yeah.
1: indeed um, this opened also opened a window for liberalizing cannabis as a commercial venture for certain product. Yet the actual policy remains unclear and contested. Apartheid's 1971 law and the parallel growth of an illegal economy shaped South Africa's unequal cannabis landscape. Now, in an opening cannabis economy, rural cultivators remain in a vulnerable position against more powerful interests. Decolonising drug-related knowledge and policies in South Africa requires a deeper reckoning with history, including from apartheid into the present. That's quite an interesting article, Mary. It's a really interesting article, and the fact that there is a um, an apartheid-like system yeah. still operating in South Africa is probably no surprise to anybody of an age yeah. like ours. Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, and it's because that's what it is. It echoes the yeah, apartheid. The same mentality. Many yeah. days. And yet it's being enforced by the so called black
0: majority you know, government. Yeah. Black government. Yeah,
1: yeah. The uh, South African continent. What is it? The South African, African, African Congress? The National African Congress? National Congress. African National yeah.
0: Congress. That's right. All right. That does it for today's uh, show. I hope the stories, yeah, some of them were interesting. I hope you all enjoyed it. Yeah. We
1: had a good time.
0: We'll leave you with a snippet of uh, Golden Brown, our theme song, and um, stay safe. See you safe.
1: next week. Stay safe, everyone. Bye. Bye. <music>